When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are days I don't believe the words I say Like a life that I'm not living A song that I'm not singing but to you The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. <laughs> we haven't done this in a while. Here we go. All right. <laughs> We're rolling. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I decided to surprise you. Ah. <laughs> well, welcome to hell with Adam and John. <laughs> it, it, that's that's what's happening right now. That is what's happening. This is the long-awaited the episode that we both imagined like from the very moment we started this podcast. Like, wouldn't it be <laughs> hilarious if we got to do just an episode on hell? And then people actually started listening and guests started coming on and this all happened. Uh-oh. And here we are. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's been a crazy month. It's been a really weird month. It's been it's been a really weird year. It's been a really weird year, but specifically doing all of this like research and getting these authors on to talk about Satan and hell and more hell and more hell has <laughs> <laughs> been Yeah. Man, I I think I've had more conversations this week and more people have reached out this week uh, to me personally to just be like, wow, thank you uh, for totally messing up my universe and now I don't know what I think anymore, yeah. which I'll be honest, I take like a small degree of like pleasure in. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I want to do is just kind of knock people off of their like false sense of certainty and security and just be like, wow, there's some really good stuff out there so i've had i've had fun this is this has been this is great it's been really enjoyable and and if we had an agenda it would be just to kind of shake things up a little bit and just get you to think and start the conversation so we're we're not saying that you need to agree with every single guest we have on or or every um you know idea that we bring up or any of them 
just just to get you guys talking and thinking and, and to say, look, like in a lot of major uh, topics, you know, um, like hell, like the devil, like, you know, a lot of things that, that we've kind of taken for granted that maybe, you know, maybe there's some other ways of looking at it out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there, there really is just so many more ways of looking at it. We, you know, having Richard Beck on, there were so many other things we could have gone to with him because I feel like all of these questions are just extremely interrelated and entangled. Yeah. And so as soon as you start talking about Satan and demons, you're already sort of talking about the problem of evil, which we kind of didn't explicitly get into. Yeah. And as soon as you're talking about the problem of evil, like how far do the consequences of evil reach? Um, afterlife. I mean, all these ideas are so intertwined and man, there's just so much more we could have said. So this is going to be kind of a, where you and I get to just chat about yeah. things that have happened this month, other things we kind of want to throw in there. So yeah, kick us off, man. What do you, where do we want to go? So we're going to, we're going to cover a few things today. Um, mostly we're going to, we're going to wrap up and just kind of talk about hell and, and, and the devil and kind of some ideas that we've kind of discussed over the last month. Mm. Uh, maybe touch on a few things that weren't weren't mentioned yeah. uh, over the course of those three episodes. Briefly, we're just going to tie the two together and, and talk about the, the nature of human evil a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's an episode in and of itself that we kind of want to get to at some point this year. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't really touch on demons either, the idea or concept of demons. So maybe that's something for Halloween next year that we can do. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. We, we wanted to with Richard Beck. We could have yeah. done three more episodes with him. I mean, there was so much there. Just incredible stuff. But I wanted Boyd to bring up that that story too, the possession story. Yes, I was trying to feed him that one, and he didn't go there, and I was really sad. It would be really fun to get um, someone who's done exorcisms. Oh man, <laughs> I have a, I have a I couple. I just dropped books. that on you. I wish you guys could have seen John's face just now. He's like, "Oh my gosh, yes." Why didn't we think of that? Oh god, <laughs> that would have been too, too bad. Uh, too bad. Uh, M. Scott Peck and Malachi Martin aren't still alive. You Maybe know? we could get the Exorcist to use like a Ouija board <laughs> and call M. Scott Peck up. Let's just from, get William Peter Blatty yeah. on here. Yeah, we'll have a seance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just make sure William Peter Blatty is, is here right I, now. I think he's still alive, right? All right, let's kick this off with <laughs> yeah. something. Let's kick this off with something light. And then you're the historian. <laughs> so maybe you can tell us a little bit the history of hell. But let's kick it off with something light. What yeah. is your... You love scary movies. Love scary movies. What is your... What is your... What are your top two or three scary movies oh man um I, I think to this day just because it's it's uh so realistic and it takes in the the religious uh kind of vibe um the exorcist the original exorcist i'm with you still to me to this day is the most terrifying movie ever made it is horrifying um and then i i think i think there's a huge gap between that one and and the next scariest mm -hmm. um i really like the original texas chainsaw massacre from oh the 70s. okay kind of a different twist not necessarily supernatural right more just horrifyingly scary those are those adrenaline movies yeah where that survival instinct kind of kicks in right i think that's why i like it and and the fact that you you never really learn anything about the psychopaths that live in the house nothing which I makes it mystery even scarier mystery in the, in, in the context of horror movies it, it just makes it absolutely that much more t terrifying completely and then i don't know man the third one i like i kind of have a guilty pleasure for like tongue-in-cheek kind of comic horror movies like uh night of the living dead or you know evil dead evil dead um yeah trick-or-treat uh um, trick-or-treat was pretty good i love that one yeah um or cabin in the woods that I brian, that one brian cox was in that one wasn't he <laughs> yes he was he's, he's gotta love brian cox so funny 
Yeah, Cabin in the Woods was remarkable. Legit. It really was. It was so great. Good. It hit on it fired on so many so many cylinders. Yeah. I'll go with you on Exorcist. Okay. That's definitely my number 1. I'm going to throw a, a curveball at you right now. Event Horizon. Whoa, Event Horizon. Sci-fi horror. Sci-fi horror and probably the reason it will always be in my top 2 or 3 is because I rented it thinking it was going to be just a sci-fi space movie, like yeah. an action movie. Yeah. Not so much. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. That's a good one. It scared the pants off me. And then I would say in recent years, the Conjuring fr- franchise yeah. and the Insidious franchise. Yeah. Really well done. Really good. We're living in a good horror age right now. Oh, we are. What, finally. All right. Did, did you know that horror movies are the the cheapest movies to produce that, that um, end up uh, bringing in the, the largest amount of profit? Man. Yeah. I'd like to. That's why do, there's so many crappy horror movies. Do some sociology and psychology on that. Yeah, it's got to tell us something about <laughs> thing, human nature. Things. <laughs> All right, historian, tell us, uh, brief us on some some history of hell type stuff. What, what are some nuggets you want to that kind of came out this month that you want to highlight? And oh man, yeah. Well, what, what are a few things you want to mention? The the big thing, and I think our two our two guests um, that that kind of focused on hell, um, Dr. Greg Boyd and Dr. Sharon Putt, um, really focused, I think, on. A really interesting aspect of kind of the evolution of of the concept of hell, mm-hmm. and I think most people off the street now, you know, like we talked about, would probably think of hell as this uh, it's this fiery abyss, you know, and there's there's this uh, red horned devil with a pitchfork who's sitting on this giant throne amongst amidst the flames. And, oh yeah, you know, you just hear the screams of the tormented, you know, and and that's kind of the you know it's obviously the the we're kind of doing this little tongue in cheek, but that's obviously the cartoon slash horror movie you know, idea that we have. And I, I like probably most people kind of took that for granted. I just assumed that's what it was, that's, right? That's the way it is. So yeah, just like uh, heaven must be fluffy white clouds <laughs> and harps and cherubs. Yeah. Cherubs and <laughs> cute little, that, chub, that might be more terrifying than hell. Honestly, mm-hmm. rosy yeah. cheek, little angel. That's kids. my hell. Yeah. A little weird, but, um, digging into it a little bit deeper, I thought it was really fascinating to see that a lot of, uh, the influence of the imagery surrounding hell, um, really came out of medieval, um, literature, medieval art. Right. Um, and, and it just kind of spread into, uh, North America through like big tent, you know, revivals, um, obviously North American preachers such as Jonathan Edwards. And, um, I think we referenced his sermon centers in the hands of an angry God. Mm-hmm. In fact, he says, this is from 1741. He says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect, over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Yeah, man. Loving God. Right Jeez. there. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just that that is so bo- I, I don't want to just crap on that for, you know, sake of, you know, just dis- dismantling this doctrine. But like how, based on what, man, like where do you where do you get that stuff? Like I just I in like some of my seminary days and some of my early nerd scholarship kind of reformed evangelical neo-Calvinist kind of days in the past, I got really into Jonathan Edwards. Really? Yeah, which was hard because the only thing I'd ever been exposed to before then was that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it is baffling to me because Jonathan Edwards was looked at as the theologian of love. 
And I mean, his most of his sermons are warm and fuzzy in so many ways. And his 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 sermon series called Charity and Its Fruits on First Corinthians thirteen, which is the, the passage on love, love is patient, love is kind. He talks about how heaven is a world of love and God is a God of love and all these kinds of things. And I'm like, how do you then like <laughs> what I dang like that yeah. is such a non sequitur to me like i just i don't get it i'm sitting here just like how, i how how do you how do you do that it, it's like uh dr boyd said on his episode he's like what 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 is our like how do we view god if if we actually believe in a, a loving god who actually delights in the eternal torture of his children makes no sense no it makes no sense to me and Mm-mm. you know the thing that so many of our guests have brought up in fact probably the the majority of our guests in some way shape or form without us planning it have said something to the effect of this that like if you really want to look at christianity christianly or you know the way you're supposed to jesus is the the thing that reveals god the most the way jesus treats people the way jesus loves people the way Jesus lives and and represents God. I mean, Scripture itself talks about how Jesus is the purest revelation of God. So what I don't get about that is how do you reconcile those things without just essentially the only way I can see it happening is, you know, you see Jesus, you look at Jesus, you learn theology, you read the New Testament, but at the end of the day, you're still carried along in the Christian subculture that was deeply influenced by this medieval art yeah. Without really questioning it. Yeah. And and it, and it's interesting because it's kind of starts during the medieval period and and you see it historically this this surge of this type of uh mindset or preaching uh within medieval Catholic Church, but it continues on through the Protestant churches in in early America. Yeah. And and it just kind of continues to perpetuate over this kind of fire and brimstone preaching to kind of convert people through fear yes. essentially. Yes. And and that's what it is. Yeah. Come on, man. Which that's, always works, right? I, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the sad thing is, is on one level, it totally works. Yeah. It totally works. How do you think ISIS is recruiting right now? Oh, absolutely. It's all fear. Fear of the future. Fear of God's wrath. You know, look at how mm-hmm. messed up everything is. Let's be let's be the solution. And then, you know, you end up with a bomb strapped to your vest. Yeah. I mean, really, truly, that's like where fundamentalism can end up going and... I don't mind saying that at all because it's a yeah. huge problem. Doing things based on fear, you're literally propagating what your theology says is the root of sin. I mean, if you want to go back to like Reformed, you know, and, and, and even Catholic, this this comes from, you know, Augustine, original sin. Mm. It's fear and pride. Yeah. And you're propagating a doctrine that is so hazy and nebulous in Scripture you really have very little foundation to make any substantiative claims, and you're using it for these. You, you talked about it, tent revivals, yeah, and these big open air gatherings of preachers, you know, all this kind of stuff. And what do you want to do? You want converts, and what do we want right now? We want cultural domination, and we want butts in the seats on Sundays. And hell is a very useful tool if that's your goal. Yeah, yeah, we've we've. Oh. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't edit anything out, so there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we kind of brought this up before, and it, it's sad, but even in modern day churches, where you know, to a large degree, even people who kind of believe in this uh, eternal, this traditional view of the uh, eternal conscious torment view of hell, 
still just kind of, you know, kind of tend to ignore it. But but yet, you know, to your point, we still follow this kind of corporate model that mm-hmm. we kind of talked about with using all means necessary to grow our churches, right? We're always right. trying to find ways and techniques to reach, you know, the the millennials or the generation Xers or Absolutely. What what can we do to recruit more people, to get mm-hmm. more people in our church, to grow our church and and ultimately it's all about growth, growth, growth. Right. Because that's what, you know, the Great Commission, because that's, you know, church attendance equals the kingdom of God. Right. In capitalistic Christianity. Very weird. Oh. We're gonna we're gonna do an episode on that, yeah. So but. I guess I guess I do <laughs> then understand, you know, at the end of the day, we are human, and people that endeavor as Christian leaders, you know, if you're listening to this, I, I would invite you to just, you know, check yourself, be careful. Uh, I'm a pastor, too, and uh, I've, I've fallen victim to this, you know, a little bit myself, that, well, you know, what is your goal? Because if you're human, you know you've got an ego, and you know that ambition, in, especially in a westernized, capitalistic celebrity entrenched culture what you really want is to feel like a big leader that you know lots of people follow and lots of people do what you say and fear and pride become very very useful motivators to control your christian subculture yeah absolutely sorry like (laughs) i mean it's true why else okay so this is another little why else would you want to be obsessed with the doctrine or hold it so tightly that it can't even be questioned. That is so unclear in your holy books, in your scriptures, and throughout church history. Why else would you want to hold on to that so tightly that if anybody comes along with an alternate view of what it is, you just freak out? Yeah. I mean... Let's let's talk about that for a second. I think that's a really good question, um, and and one of the things that Dr. Sharon Putt brings up that I thought was absolutely fascinating. I think I think it's one of the high points of her book, Raising mm-hmm. Hell. Um, and and by the way, even though she kind of presented the uh, uh, the Christian universalism perspective, right? Her book goes into uh, Christian universalism and annihilationism, um, and, and so she she presents both sides. She mm-hmm. doesn't just focus on that on that one, but one of the, the the points she brings up in the book that I thought was brilliant is the fact that you know we we look at at hell as a, as a way to to get justice to, mm-hmm. to have justice served right right so we look at it from a human perspective of what does justice mean to us yes and and so we look at hell traditionally as this um, retributive retri- yes retributive or, or redemptive um, view of, of justice so the people who wronged us you know or the people who were just truly awful in life and just hurt people or you know murderers whatever we we think that in the end right that we want justice to be served so they have to be punished and they have to pay right but we're not we're not necessarily looking at it from the perspective of God's eternal never-ending uh, free gift of love and mm-hmm. grace. And the fact that that truly anyone uh, in the end can receive that gift of grace, and so uh, she looks at it from the perspective of God is 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 desiring reconciliation, right? You know, reconciliate. Uh, what's the, what's the word? Reconciliatory. Is that a word? Did I make that up? I Go for it. it. Do it. <laughs> it's mine. Um, <laughs> it's it's a nice word, John. Thank you. Thank you. It sounds sounds big. It's probably not real. Reconciliatory. Yeah. <laughs> 
I like it. I just coined that. I like it. But uh, he, he's looking to reconcile all all people to himself. Yeah. And a lot of people, and I'll be honest, my my love is conditional. <laughs> you know, it, it is. has limits. And uh, at the end of the day, like I struggle with forgiveness. Mm. And, and, and even people who ask for it, I, you know, depending on the situation, I still struggle with the saying, you know what, I forgive you because deep down I'm just like, no, I want you to suffer like I suffered. Yeah. And I think as a, as a human being, that's kind of the condition of all humans. And so we, we tend to look at it like, well, of course there has to be a fiery, you know, pit of eternal torture because we want those people who are truly bad people who committed atrocities in life to pay for that. Right. And we're not saying, look, they don't. We're not saying that they don't, or, or that they don't have to, uh, you know, face face the the evils and the atrocities they committed in this life. But what we're saying is that, you know, in this temporal life, does it make sense as a punishment? Does a punishment fit the crime? Basically, yeah, I liked that argument. That yeah. was kind of Sharon was kind of saying that also, but you know, that was definitely the thrust of Greg Boyd's argument which yeah you know, yeah you think about just think about that like i liked when he said i mean what is the point that's at a certain point okay like yeah sure maybe hitler needs a few lashings you know maybe he needs to you know feel the heat a little bit just yeah. for being so incredibly horrible and i'm sure stalin and mussolini are right yeah. down there with him but uh, you know after a couple million years yeah of like burning alive it's like, you think he's had enough? Like, you think we can maybe yeah. maybe let him out? And that's why there's just, we need more openness. We need more, um, we need more grace mm. in these conversations. And I think my favorite word to use is we just need more space yes. to sort of move around in these ideas, especially ones that are as unclear as this one is. So, you know, for all the, I want to, I want to be, you know, cool about this, but for all the people out there that, you know, it causes them a great deal of anxiety to, to think about these things, I guess our overall point in having this month was to just show people that it it's, you don't need to feel bad and, uh, for not knowing what you believe about hell. Right. I think that that would be my one big takeaway. And if there's one thing that you just kind of want to say, man, I just don't, und- I just don't know. Like, how about just admitting that you don't know? Like, yeah. I don't care how many years of school you've been through. We are talking about eternity. Uh, yeah, the afterlife. 
we're not even touching on heaven yet, but like we're, we're talking about things that language falls so short and whatever language we're using, if we can't admit that it's mostly symbolic to, to describe something that we can't get our heads around yet. Right. Then no wonder we're all fighting all the time. There's no way we could have language sufficient enough to talk about these ideas. And so people, if you're listening to this, give yourself, give others some space around these ideas that we just don't have adequate means. One of my, you know, we didn't get to, to talk about this at all, but my favorite resource on the, on the uh, topic of hell, my favorite resource is a fictional work <laughs> by C.S. Lewis. It's my favorite book I've ever read. So good. The Great Divorce, which covers heaven and hell and sort of everything in between. And if you haven't read it, you need to immediately read The Great Divorce. It's like, you know, 90, 100 pages, something like that. And it gives some of the best imagery, which is symbolism, which is what we're using anyway, right? to talk about these concepts. And there's a scene where Lewis is observing some people talking in the afterlife, in the sort of in-between place, or maybe it's heaven, but they're not in hell anymore, and they're having a conversation about hell. And this is the quote. And I, and I really like this, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, John, because I think it's a, an alternate view of, of reality that sort of pulls everything together. Yeah. And I think, it's, I, I think it gives us some good language. Here's the quote. The whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing we're trying to understand is so nearly nothing. But you'll have had experiences like this. It begins with a grumbling mood, and yourself is still distinct from that mood, perhaps even criticizing it. And yourself, in a dark hour, may actually will that mood and embrace it. And you can repent and then come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. There may come a day where there may not be a you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it. It'll just be the grumbling itself going on forever like a machine. And his point here is, and I think he's borrowing from Kierkegaard here, who's kind of got one of my other favorite perspectives on evil and Satan and hell in his book, The Sickness Unto Death. Where he essentially says, listen, we all choose to form our identities. We all make decisions that, like Boyd was saying, become habits, that become character, that keep going on and on. And the real question here is, do things matter? And do they matter eternally? And if they do, that has huge consequences for the present. And it has huge possible consequences for after the present. What Lewis is kind of pointing out in The Great Divorce is these things that we don't think are a big deal, if we are eternal people, if we are eternal beings, then the greed in our hearts, the selfishness, the bigotry, the judgmentalism, the just anger, could swallow us up to yeah. the point that we don't exist anymore. And I think that like, you know, like that other author that everybody loves to hate for his book, Love Wins. I think that tying the the later into the now somehow is one of the best ways to talk about this. I don't know. Definitely. And I think, 
I would love for you actually just for a moment to talk about um, kind of C.S. Lewis kind of lays out an alternate theory of hell mm-hmm. in, in The Great Divorce. And I think it's really interesting. It's very intriguing. Um, and it's definitely very different, again, from the traditional view. Um, I would love just for a second, if maybe for people who aren't uh, familiar with it, who haven't read it, um, to just kind of break that down a little bit. Yeah, man, real quick. So um, essentially, The Great Divorce was uh, C.S. Lewis had a dream. Uh, a very disturbing, very vivid dream. And he woke up and tried to write as much of it down as possible. And this is how the dream starts. He finds himself standing in line, waiting for a bus, on this really gray day where he couldn't tell if it was just barely morning, but not quite morning. He couldn't tell if it was almost dawn or almost dusk, but it was kind of misting in the air and it's just gray and dreary. And everybody's just kind of, upset and people in the line are fighting and he realizes he's getting on a bus and he doesn't know why and eventually the bus takes a trip out of this place that he was in which he then realizes that he was in hell that hell is this place of just tastelessness and selfishness and isolation and everybody gets whatever they want and it actually makes them worse and worse and worse people that hate each other and themselves more and more and more it's just this ongoing thing And he takes a bus ride up into heaven and they're allowed to like get out and look around and talk to people. And these people come out and and greet them called the bright people. Yeah. And they're just so substantial and solid and they make, you know, Lewis and, and all the others feel so small. And as they walk on the blades of grass in heaven, like the blades of grass are so real compared to them that it actually hurts to like walk on the grass. And the whole point of the book is, you know, the eternal reality is something that must be chosen and the choice is always available. But the more you sink yourself into selfishness and into addiction and into these, you know, horrendously character destroying choices we make, the less you'll want to choose the good because you're just kind of trying to hold on to what's yours. And so Lewis has this great quote where he says, Um, the doors of heaven or the gates of heaven or the gates of hell, I should say, are locked from the inside. Yeah. And I just think that's really great imagery because if you know somebody that is just so full of unforgiveness or so full of spite or bitterness or hatred or malice or greed or whatever, they, it's like a tasty treat to them. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not giving this up. This is like my pack of double stuffed Oreos, man. This is like my, (laughs) this is like my thing, you know, don't take away you invite somebody to forgive somebody that's hurt them, and it's like you're asking them to give up their firstborn. Yeah. You know? You fall in love with evil, and evil becomes good. And he basically just says it's a, like, this is where it goes back to Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard says hell is essentially just uh, an identity freely chosen other than unconditional love going on forever. Yeah. I, I think that flows. I love that book because I think his his imagery and his idea of hell flows so well with so many other ideas that we've talked about where where essentially you can create your own hell on this earth right? because you have free will, you have free choice uh, to choose any path that you want to go down. And it's just a, a way of God saying, okay, like my silly child, you know, you want to do that. I'm going to allow you all the, you know, the free will you want to completely follow that path to its end. Right. And, and, and no matter how bad it gets, like you have the ability to do that. Right. And you can create your own hell by, by doing that. 
Yes, and that's essentially what C.S. Lewis uh, shows, and and he had, and he basically steps into multiple conversations with multiple different people who just can't let go mm-hmm. of these really inconsequential desires or loves, and it all comes back to just feeding their own egos and yep. and being selfish and and all this sorts of thing, and and right in front of them they have a relative who's like literally all you have to do is I will help you walk across this this sharp grass. It will be painful, but we can go up to the mountaintop. Yeah, just say you want it. And they're like, mm, I, I've got other things to do. Yeah, I'm busy. <laughs> you know? Like that one theologian. <laughs> in, the, in the book, there's a theologian <laughs> that he's like, no, I, I have to get back home and, and write a treatise on why there's no hell. Right. <laughs> like, or, you know, whatever. It's yeah. just so laughable. But I think that's my favorite book because it, it helps us with our imaginations see that we are either creating heaven or creating hell. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And we'll touch on on this a little bit, but I I think it also flows well into one of my favorite authors. Um, A a book of his that I read back in the day is Dr. M. Scott Peck, who is a a pretty popular, um, famous um, psychologist, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of theologian type. Who wrote the 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 uh, best selling book uh, back in the, I think the seventies, The Road Less Traveled? Mm-hmm. Still use at college campuses uh, all over the place. But he also wrote a book called uh, People of the Lie, and it's mm-hmm. about the 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 idea of um, human evil and where that stems from. And a lot of what he points out is, look, it's this thing that we call evil is really just this um, this idea that people are always prone to feeding their own egos and being selfish and mm. And, 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 uh, so he goes into that a lot. And so we'll touch on that a little bit, but, um, let's go back into the, the history of hell. Cause one of the, the interesting things I think is that people just assume this concept was just immediate and it's yeah. not it, you know, as we just touched on at the, at the beginning of this episode, this is a concept that developed over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And in fact, the, uh, early Jews or the early Jews, the early Christians who who you know came out of Judaism, Judaism didn't even actually have um, this concept of hell that we have today. Right. So this uh, this is something that was birthed over time. Um, but what I would love to talk to you, or talk about rather is um, w- let's look at the words. Yeah. So the words that we translate into hell, I thought was really interesting. It's and so interesting. And so you and we, assume, hold on one sec oh, too, because it. when you say translate into hell, yeah, we gotta hang up like right there, <laughs> like because wait, what do you mean? Like, so if I open my Bible right now, yeah, and I see the word hell in a bunch of different books in a bunch of different places, yeah, that's not all just one word. Which translation are we reading? <laughs> <laughs> the old, the old King James. <laughs> I mean, just any any trans any English translation. Well, some of the newer translations are actually getting a little bit better about um, being a little more specific. And so there are essentially three words that show up in the ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek languages okay. uh, that were translated when, it was, when they were translated over to English. Um, it, really, the most popular Bible back in the day, right, is the King James. Mm-hmm. I think we all, I think I still have a copy of that somewhere. It's, yeah, it, 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 it's largely read yes. and, and available. Well, what what King James, the King James version did is they basically lumped all of these terms that all reference the afterlife. Uh, they they just kind of lumped them all into this English translation of the word hell. 
And in fact, if we if we back up a little bit and we look at those three words, those three words actually um, are a little more nuanced, I think, than we're you know giving them credit for. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the only references uh, to hell, and I'm using finger quotes here, um, come from this word sheol, which just means land of the dead or place of the dead or grave. Mm-hmm. So interesting because there's no reference to fire Mm-mm. or eternity or any of those things, just Land of the dead, place of the dead, or grave. Yeah. So then we look in the New Testament. Okay, so, all right, it's got to be in the New Testament, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, must, <laughs> it has to be there. So there's a few words, like I said, uh, that are translated into the word hell due to the nature of the more precise Greek language. Greek is very nuanced and very tricky, and oftentimes, not in just reference to hell, but a lot of other words, there is no exact equivalent in the English language. Wait, and... The New Testament was written mainly by Jews, right? That's correct. So why would they be using Greek? That was their language. Oh, because they were conquered by Greece. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and then Rome conquered Greece. So Mm. we had these outside influences into the Hebrew culture that maybe didn't come from like the Torah. Yeah. Maybe didn't come from like Moses and the prophets and the rabbis. So strange that we interesting we would have. So maybe ideas actually pervaded. Absolutely. Even the Hebrew expressions in the Greek language? Interesting. Wow. Yeah, a lot of Hellenistic influence there. So it's not simple. This isn't simple. Oh, no. Oh, dude, I was hoping it was going to be simple. <laughs> we have to work hard again. I'm, I'm turning this podcast off now. <laughs> too much work. This is too much work. Well, we're, we're going to lay it out for you a little bit so you don't have to dig too much. But um, you know, we, we definitely are well overdue for, for some reading uh you know, suggestions. Yes, we are. So, okay, (laughs) continue. I'm I'm intrigued. All right. So we have three words that pop up in the New Testament. Uh, The first one is Hades. And it, at times it's described as a place of paradise. If Mm -hmm. you look at uh, Luke 23, 43, um, or other times it's punishment in Luke 16, 23. Interesting. Weird. Very weird. So we have Hades. Okay. So again, not, not hell, not, it's not describing necessarily a fiery place. Is a Greek from Greek mythology. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Weird. Wow. All right. So, no, uh, word number two, Tartarus. Um, it was used in reference to rebellious angels and has the nuance of a deep, dark pit uh, where they await the judgment of God. Okay. And uh, that one, I believe, is used just one time hmm. in all the New Testament. Not well, not incredibly it. substantial. No. Hmm. <laughs> no. Okay. For an important word. Yeah. You know. So largely unclear as to what that is. <laughs> Little gray. Hmm. <laughs> Um, and the third one is Gehenna. <laughs> this is one that we've brought up before. Um, common word used by Jesus, um, but interestingly enough... Now, Gehenna was an actual place, right? Yes. Oh. And, and pretty disgusting, <laughs> if, if, we be, if we want to be honest. It's an actual physical place during the time of Jesus and his disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, the word means Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Um, and it's essentially... It was this giant garbage dump on the outskirts of Jerusalem where... Children were previous sacrificed to pagan gods. So these competing religions yep. uh, were sacrificing children there. So obviously... Most religions did. Dark, gross place. Yeah. Um, it's also a place where bodies were cremated, um, and they're pretty much there were just constant fires burning there. Uh, so Jesus commonly uses this term to reference the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Hmm. So... As, as we know, uh, we kind of talked about this in the scripture series, Jesus used a lot of symbolism, a lot of hyperbole to, to get his points across, because let's be honest, if there's a running theme with between Jesus and his disciples, it's Jesus' disciples just not understanding 
yeah. just not getting it. Huh? Yeah, they're like, wait, so this is what you mean? And Jesus is like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so there we. Uh, so those are the three words, and all three of those words, Hades, Tartarus, and Gehenna, were all just lumped in uh, and translated to the English word hell. Hmm. But obviously, as we can see right there, like these three words all have very different meanings, potentially. Hmm. So how do we start to then construct, um, if we want to be true to Christianity and true to you know, what the originators, Jesus and his followers and before them, you know, Jews and how do we, what kind of work do we have to do then to try to get as close as we can to whatever meaning they were trying to leave us? I mean, what, what's the work that we would have to do to, to try to do that? Well, I think the first thing is, is obviously newer translations of the Bible um, are a lot more precise, um, a little bit more accurate, I would say. And they, they've actually started to use the actual Greek word as mm-hmm. opposed to hell. So a lot of the newer translations, you'll see the word Hades, Tartarus, and, and Gehenna uh, show up versus just this blanket word uh, um, of hell. That's nice. And so that's hugely helpful, obviously. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but then when we're doing we're doing our, our hermeneutical work there... Um, I think the big thing is to understand who the audience was at the time and to look at what may, what may, you know, what, what might Jesus have uh, meant, you know, or what message was he trying to get across when he was using this word? So you mean if he wasn't teaching a class on hell, right? What was he doing at the time (laughs) that he mentioned that? Like what was the overall, maybe a good word is context for everything that was being talked about? So this is good, responsible. It's so funny to me that so many people that teach you to be responsible with ancient texts are so irresponsible with ancient texts. Yeah. You know, it's so many of the people that want to hold, you know, with a white knuckled grip on the doctrine of, you know, hell or the doctrine of election. It's like you had to construct those doctrines outside of, you know, what's in scripture and it just comes back to, in my opinion, so much of what we mean when we talk about the authority of Scripture. Oh, the authority of Scripture. You mean the authority of your interpretation of Scripture. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, can we just chill a little bit? Can we go back to that hashtag? <laughs> hashtag? <laughs> can, we just, can we just chill a little bit? Like, this stuff is important, but to say that you have the market cornered on what this means is very fascist and dangerous. Yeah. And it's like... You got to do your best. And, you know, it's kind of like Peter Rollins says, these are the things that nobody knows how to talk about, but it's that which we cannot speak of that we must never stop speaking. So I'm not saying we should all just quit. Right. We have to keep talking. But if we're going to talk, we got to give each other some space and some grace. Yeah. And it's like we've said before, it's like if there's even a question, if there's even if there's even an element of grayness there, then we have to take a step back and say, maybe we don't have this on lockdown. Mm. Right. And. And I think we, we need to take a step back. And as Sharon, Dr. Sharon Putt says, we need to read the, the, the Bible through Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, through the lens of Jesus. Yeah. And remember that Jesus was a man of compassion, forgiveness, peace, nonviolence, and love. And we see the nature of God through Jesus. That was yep. the whole point. Yep. And so when we when we look at things like the concept of hell, are we are we really digging in and, and understanding the context mm. that these words are being used uh, in? Um, and are we understanding the message in general? So you got to do a little work. We got to do our, our homework. And, uh, and, and I think it was eye opening for me even, I'll be honest. I, I had no idea that this was something that evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years. No, this has been incredibly eye opening to me. 
Yeah. Let's talk a little bit. So we've talked about the, the medieval influence, uh, Dante's Inferno mm-hmm. um, from um, from his from his epic poem that mm-hmm. had a lot of influence on the imagery of hell, uh, as well as medieval literature, you know, revivalist preaching and that sort of thing. So um, let's briefly touch on the alternate theories of hell in scripture. So, okay. so obviously traditionalism, you know, the eternal conscious torment, you're thrown into the fiery pits of hell for yeah. an eternity. Yeah. Um, never to get out, never, never. to be, no more chances. Right. You're and, done. And you know, I mean, there's, there are, there are texts that do make it sound like that. Like, let's not shy away from that. Like yeah. there, there are texts, you know, you scarily, you know, read revelation and you, yeah, you, it's gonna, it's gonna be awkward <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> Don't do it out loud. Right. Um, but yeah, there's, there are some definite, uh, some issues there and, and trying to figure out exactly what was going on. It's tough, man. Okay, so yeah. what, what's some more. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the two theories that we kind of uh, brought out in the last two episodes: Christian universalism and annihilationism. Um, and again, let's uh, we need to make the point that Christian universalism is not the same as Unitarian u- universalism. Okay, describe the difference real quick. So Unitar- Unitarian universalism is is the popular everyone gets in no matter what path they're on. Everyone okay, gets in. Ev- everybody gets in to just, heaven. Okay, yeah. Okay. So basically, that's it doesn't nice. matter what you do. That's, yeah. That's nice. <laughs> so the, obviously, the, there's the main issue with that one is that, you know, there really, there's no point in following the Bible or leading a good life because no matter what you do, like the good people and the really crappy people are all going to get in regardless, right? Which again brings us back to that point that no matter what you believe about the quote afterlife, it mm-hmm. is going to in some way affect how you view this life, how you, how you view what you do on a regular basis, the here and now. The kingdom here. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's the big thing with Unitarian Universalism. The difference between that and Christian Universalism is that Christian Universalism believes that Jesus is the only true way. Okay. So, a little bit different. Jesus still is, is a focal point of kind of, of, of that so model. everybody still gets in... For the most part, I mean, yeah, right, yeah. Everybody still gets in, but it's because of the work of Jesus, correct? So you are linked strongly. You are bound to the Christian tradition, right? And propagating the good news or telling people about the good news that hey, everybody gets in because Jesus is really great and did all this great stuff for us. Yeah, I love that view. Yeah, I'll be honest, I can't, I can't get there. I Let's mean, talk about that. All right. So, so you and I think are are. Uh, we, we don't necessarily, just so people are clear, we don't agree on everything. No. But like... It may sound like it on this podcast. Yeah, we'll never tell you. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think you and I are are pretty pretty on the same, you know... Wavelength here. Wavelength as far as this goes. So so what is your main issue with Christian universalism and, and why, why do you prefer essentially maybe annihilationism or some version of that over 
Christian universalism. Okay, I'll do my best to answer that question quickly because <laughs> I don't want to drag this whole recap out a ton. So I'm gonna right. I'll be really quick. My my biggest problem with Christian universalism, um, first and foremost, it it to me sounds too good to be true. It it really just does. And aside from that, aside from just the basic sort of my gut instinct of like, man, that is awesome. But in my you know experience of reality normally when things sound too good to be true and there's no catch like anywhere and there's no like you know there's no dark side um usually just kind of fails my gut check initially so that's just initially and then i actually start thinking about it when i actually think about it again very attractive idea i very much want to believe it and i'm not saying i won't someday you know maybe i'll work through some of this stuff um i'm not super far off from from believing it but my biggest problem is um this argument hinges on god being a god of love um i think when it talks about god being a god of love it's specifically talking about a relational love and if god is a god of loving relationship and we're united to him in some kind of relationship relationships don't really exist without choice of some kind and choices have consequences and choices imply other options or other destinations or what other outcomes of of some kind and again like my caveat to this entire conversation is i have no freaking clue what i'm talking about (laughs) like nobody does (laughs) right if, if somebody really like adam what is your opinion on hell no idea i have no idea Right. It's like, I've never been there. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's so gray. It's so unclear. I've got some thoughts. Yeah. But I don't have a theology of hell, like, worked out. I'm like, this is what it is. Yeah. I'm like, man, I, you know, I like Greg Boy. But okay, so back to universalism. There's no choice. So it, it would make me then either redefine what love is, which I wouldn't even know how to do that. Right. That is... That is really, really interesting because then, again, if I redefine what love means in terms of my relationship with God, I would have to then redefine what love means in my relationships with anyone and everyone else. And it would just, it would seem like I'm just playing games with words and and with, uh, you know, just semantic, you know, tricks. Yeah. Yeah. that just kind of unsettles me. I, I feel like maybe I'm just wanting to see something. I'm trying to be aware of my own biases, sure. and I know how badly I want to believe this doctrine. It'd be it'd be really easy. I just can't quite get there. I'm with you. Okay. So, I, but I think yeah, I think to to your point, it's um it's still something worth talking about. It's still something worth discussing. And and these are ideas that are continually continually being evolved and and added to and and that sort of thing. But um, we just wanted you guys to, to to hear some kind of less talked about alternate ideas, yeah, and maybe kind of make you take a look at it a little bit closer and say, hey, maybe maybe this isn't as clean cut uh, as black and white as we always thought it was, right? So not not to uh, to, to harp on this too long because I want to move on to the devil, mm-hmm. uh, but again, it's uh, even even opposing preachers back in the day, like uh, we talked about uh, the the tent revival period. Um, even opposing preachers saw this fire and brimstone method of preaching as really ineffective yeah. uh, in, in terms of, you know, conversions. 
um, th that wouldn't lead to rebirth or ultimately a change of heart, which is really what the message of the Gospels are. I, I agree. Before we move on, though, to... Yes. Uh, there's one quote from another book on hell that I just thought we should read real quick. Do it. Really great book. I think this really sums up everything that we're talking about. Um, I think you guys are going to like this. Um, here's the quote. This, this author says this. There are individual hells and communal society-wide hells. And Jesus teaches us to take both seriously. There is hell now and there is hell later. And Jesus teaches us to take both seriously. This is a pretty affirmative view of hell, even probably more affirmative than most of the views that I grew up on because it brings in the now and the later. Yeah. And says Jesus teaches us to take both of them seriously. Now, pop quiz, John. Do you know who wrote that? Wasn't it that like crazy universalist preacher who used to live in Michigan and now lives in California or something like that? Because he got excommunicated from the church. Because he's a crazy heretic. By John Piper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who we love. <laughs> love you, John. Uh, <clears throat> I, I've talked to... I wanted to bring this up, not because we need to go to bat for Rob Bell. Right. You know, it, we don't agree with everything the guy says either. Yeah, I love it. I love, I love it that I feel like when I'm... Listening to Rob or reading Rob, I feel like it's more of a conversation and less of you have to believe X, Y, Z. Yes. Which is what I really like. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because there's so many people that I've run into mm -hmm. in the years since this book has come out that have this guy pegged as somebody that is throwing the doctrine of hell out. Yeah. Redefining it to, to the point that it's unrecognizable and, and meaningless. Right. And becoming universalist. And, you know, then Jesus doesn't matter. Right. And oh my gosh, the whole thing's falling apart. Yeah. And that is a quote out of the middle of the book that he does his whole like Rob Bell thing where he like makes the spaces between the lines and the paragraphs like for extra emphasis because he really wants people to hear there is hell now, there is hell later, and Jesus teaches us to take both seriously. Yeah. How do you read a book like this and think that this guy doesn't believe in in hell. I mean, what what are your thoughts on this whole stupid phenomenon? And then we can move on. I just wanted to kind of close our hell discussion with this. Absolutely. Um, I had heard the same things about this book for years, and in in a guilty way that probably prevented me from reading it before I did. And then finally, I was like, no, I you know what? I, I want to be informed. And so I sat down and read it. And I think I think to your point, I think a lot of people who were so avidly against it never read it. For one. Uh, and for two, at no point in that book does he ever claim to be a universalist. Essentially, all he's doing is saying the same thing that we just said, which is that there, there's something there in Scripture, but it, I don't. I think there are a lot of other external influences that that basically developed this modern day idea of hell. Mm -hmm. And that's all he's saying is like, let's look and let's dig a little deeper. And if we truly believe in a God of eternal, never-ending love, that is a gift to us for free, then let's take a step back and, and chill out a little bit. Like we've been saying, it's just chill. Yeah. I just had to close with that. Cause I just, good, I think man. there's so many people out there that are like, man, that guy's nuts and probably never read the book, never read the book. And it's definitely not my favorite book he's written. No. Cause I, I think he's written some really brilliant stuff. And I think mm -hmm. that this, what I loved about this book is it got a conversation going, which 
that guy's taken so much flack for this thing and you know god bless him for taking it all on the chin and never really retaliating you never heard him retaliate yeah. to anybody and he could have but look we're sitting here talking about this creating more space and grace and uh and just you know opportunities for people to actually think yeah to actually think and not be afraid yeah and so i i'm happy that he wrote it just for that and you don't have to agree with it, but come on, people, this is not the Inquisition, right? No. So, like, you don't have to agree with it, but, like, you don't also have to, like, poo-poo the ideas in there, you know? Like, it, it was meant to be a conversation starter, and I think he has some really valid questions that, that deserve to be examined. And I think that's what a lot of people have started to do since then. Um, clearly, there have been a lot of books that have come out since Love Wins that, that probably dig even a little deeper mm. into the topic and i think that's great right so uh maybe like raising hell yeah raising hell dr sharon baker absolutely poverty is so hard to see when it's only on your tv or 20 miles across town so good we moved out of jesus neighborhood where he's hungry and not feeling so good from going through our trash all right um let's move on let's let's move on all right so before we move on to the devil and and really wrap this this month up um, so that you can all go trick or treating, <laughs> or whatever you're doing. Trick or treating, um, probably not quite yet, but no, very soon. No, it'd be actually probably what the day before, or, or maybe go to your harvest party. <laughs> yeah, I'm not laughing at you. No, I'm laughing at the eight year old version of myself who <laughs> probably did that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Wherever you're at, um, let's talk about the 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 concept that kind of ties the two things together, right? So let's talk a little bit about evil, just a tiny bit. Um, we're actually going to dedicate an episode to that in the future. But the 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 idea um, kind of underneath the concept of evil that I think is really important to the way that we view hell, the way that we view the devil or Satan, is this concept of original sin. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. What mm-hmm. what what does that mean? First of all, yeah. And where did that idea come from? Oh man, um, I think so. I'm pretty sure. I know this goes back to Augustine. Yes, and that in the early church fathers, you're quizzing me now. I, I am. Appreciate that. I got it right here. So keep my theology nerd on. <laughs> goes back to Augustine. So that's you know the third century. Yep. Or would that be? That's the fourth century because it's the 300s. Yeah. So so, so it's the fourth century. So Irenaeus kind of pioneered it in the second century, but um, it was adopted and really pushed by Augustine in the in the fifth century as a response to Gnosticism. I did not know that about Irenaeus. There you go. <laughs> okay, so for people that don't know what Gnosticism is, uh, quick, I mean, maybe they've read some Dan Brown novels and <laughs> they've, they've seen the word before. You know, it got really popular a few years ago when the Nag Hammadi documents were found in Egypt and all that kind of stuff. So Gnosticism, quick... Quick little def- okay, so quick little definition of Gnosticism. Essentially, you've got um, people that really uh, saw an opportunity um, to advance some ideas um, about Jesus that were not substantiated, the best we can tell, by the early apostles, the early, the early, earliest Christian fathers and mothers and writers. Um, and it Gnostic literally means knowledge, 
and they taught um they were sort of elitists in a lot of ways people people talk a lot about how the council of nicaea just ousted the gnostics and only took christian literature and you know we, there's all these extra gospels and you know we should include those too and it's all mind control and blah 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 look there is probably some of that because at that point it christian was influenced and in, in controlled by the roman empire and there was probably some of that but if you read for yourself you will notice a completely different flavor and perspective between the Gnostics and the early quote-unquote Christian writers. And the big one is this. Gnostic means knowledge, so they believed that they could have a secret knowledge that made them more elitists. They, they were, you know, Paul called them like super apostles. And, you know, the <laughs> gospel writer John was, you know, talking about how these people don't love. These people are all about looking good, being elite, not serving the poor, not... It was an elitist knowledge, kind of like the Illuminati or you yeah. know, something like that. It's like, oh, we've got the secrets. You know, we've, we can control people and we have power because we have a secret knowledge of the divine that nobody else has. This is incredibly exclusive, incredibly elitist brand that, that isn't without, you know, some things that you can learn from it, especially about, you know, ancient Christianity and, and things like that. So, okay, Gnostics, Irenaeus was basically refuting the Gnostics. And, and Augustine. And so what is original sin? So original sin essentially <laughs> is that um, because of the fall of Adam, that essentially we carry on that, that sin for all time. So he basically passed on this faulty human nature to all of the descendants after him. So Everybody's broken. Yeah. So essentially we're born kind of at a disadvantage almost, right? Screwed. Yeah. So the interesting thing that I found out is that is not what the early church fathers had adopted. They believed in original blessing. Yeah. So what is that? Well, when you read the, whether you take them literally or figuratively or whatever, but the, you know, the earliest documents in, in scripture, Genesis, talking about creation, um, there were these benedictions, these blessings spoke at every integral part over creation. So God made this and it was good. And he said, it is good, which isn't just a, Hey, check me out. I'm pretty good at creating stuff. It, it literally in, in the ancient Hebrew meant, you know, a blessing like you, like I say you are good. And so there's this goodness. And when he made humans, um, whatever you think that actually means, there was an even more explicit and higher level blessing. He said they were very good. And so there's this incredible blessedness and that we are made in God's image. So there's this divine aspect to all of humanity, which gives everybody respectability and honor and dignity in the image of God, that God isn't this separate thing that we are trying to ascend to, that in the very beginning, the blessing on humanity is you're already there. You're already loved. You're already the pinnacle. All of you, just yeah. just by just by breathing, just by being here. So this is interesting because I think this is another situation where something that we kind of assumed that in in the broad, you know, the uh, mainstream church that we all kind of like have taken for granted because it's just what we were told. It's what we were raised on, and and that's what we believe, right? Right. So original sin, we're all just born broken immediately, which kind of stinks if you really break it down. You're like, wow, I didn't do anything, and yet 
I'm already kind of screwed. And in my opinion, if you want to teach somebody something, why don't you start with something that's a little less obvious? Like, it's so obvious from the moment you're aware of yourself that there's lack, that there's need, that there's desperation, that there's, you know, uh, competition, you know, and, and, and treachery and lying and betraying and all. Dude, nope. We don't need a doctrine for that. Like, <laughs> we really don't need to like rub that in people's faces more. It's like, yeah, we know. Yeah. Like, maybe a solution is to remind people of the blessing that came first, and that you know, I I just don't think that. Yeah, I think it's kind of messed up. Yeah, and and to not go too deeply into this because we could again, we'll do a whole episode on this. But there are alternate theories beyond original sin that are based in scripture. And I think the one that I like the most is that we are born sinless or blameless until such time as we fully understand the consequences of our actions mm-hmm. and develop the ability to have a personal relationship with God. Age so, of responsibility. Yes. Sure. And so th- this is a more individualized idea that we each make our own decisions and are therefore personally responsible for our own actions. Sure. And that even goes back into like, you know, when Moses was going to uh, lead people into the promised land and a whole generation rebelled and they all had to essentially die in the desert, except those of kids that were like i think under the age of 13 or whatever they were like okay you're good because yeah. you you're young and you have no idea what's going on yet <laughs> yeah and you're not you've no responsibility so i mean there's even hints to that in in some of the literature like long long time ago so that's interesting yeah and boyd brings that up too he's like you know I, you don't you don't meet too many evil babies infants you know yeah come on man it's like and, and he talks about that well, you and, haven't met i mean my kids were pretty awful <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe i have met a couple evil babies <laughs> i think <laughs> i think my son may have been evil and my 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 wife is convinced my daughter was evil even as an infant <laughs> well it could have been worse because there's there that could be the sleeplessness talking <laughs> yeah, yeah. well there were some stories about ted bundy as a child sneaking into his parents room and sticking knives under the sheets so like you, like you do maybe <laughs> we could all be wrong again yeah. so yeah. But um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll go into that more. So in the how future. does that? Why did you want to bring that up as far as the ideas of like uh, what we're talking about with hell and in uh, Satan? Because I know that you were tying that into something, and I forgot what it was. Yeah. So original sin um, is kind of the predominant theory, and so again, original sin kind of basically presupposes that we are all born essentially. Well, some some translations of that that we're all born evil essentially right we have to fight against our our human nature our our human um tendency of to do evilness and and move towards good right as opposed to being either neutral or good to begin with mm-hmm. and making decisions that become essentially evil right so that had a lot to do with um kind of the influence on the development of the idea of traditional uh, idea of hell mm. and also a little to do with the kind of evolution of of the figure of satan uh throughout scripture which is the the next part we'll get into the history of our current view um of of the devil as god's opponent mm-hmm. uh versus kind of how he's seen in, in early jewish writings right so the adversary the adversary precisely right so the word satan uh derives from the root Satan, which means one who opposes, obstructs, or acts as an adversary. Right. One of my systematic theology professors in college um, or in seminary, 
would always call Satan the Satan. And, and we just did, we did, we always did what you did. Just, we would just laugh. You we, giggled. We'd snicker because it's so funny. The Satan. It's like, it just, I know. Come on, man. Just, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think if we all mispronounce it, then we can just go with the mispronunciation at this point, right? Right, exactly. Because now you just sound silly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the other word that pops up is this Greek term diabolos. Yep, which means the one who divides. Yeah, or or one who throws something across one's path is right. another one. Yep. But um this is a word again kind of like like hell that we talked about it was later translated to devil. Mm-hmm. Even though it doesn't directly translate to devil, there are some better translations there. Again, that tricky Greek language, man. Yep. Tricky tricky. Man. <laughs> so tricky. So here's something that was interesting. If we go back to er- early Jewish writings within the Torah, and as we know, um, a lot of Old Testament, uh, you know, is is uh, uh, when we talk about the Torah, that, uh, that's a lot of the Old Testament there. Um, evolution over time, uh, you know, this concept of the devil, and no mentions in the early Jewish writings. Nothing in the Torah. Interesting. No devil. What about the book of Job? Book of Job, okay. So... Later references to Satan in the book of Job, they depict Satan as more of a challenging associate or even an aspect of God. Interesting. Yeah, so he's more of a friendly, you know, takes more of a friendly bet as a type of like almost tester, but he hadn't at that point developed into this idea of the tempter. Mm. So he was more trying to, to test. So in, in oh, so he wasn't the tempter yet, but right. there, there was this sort of diabolical aspect. You know, Job's like one of my favorite books. Yeah. Because it's so Poor guy. so weird, <laughs> yeah, uh, and so problematic. Mm-hmm. And in the in you know in the beginning of the book of Job, you know, Satan or the the Satan or the Diablos or whatever comes to God and like I mean the guy wants to like mess with Job, yeah, and, and and he wants to like throw in God's face like people don't really love you, like people don't really love you, yeah. And, you know, look, of course, of course he loves you. You know, you made him rich. He's got a beautiful family. Like, of course he loves you. He's, yeah. he's a mercenary, you know? Yeah. And so there's this, there is this accusation kind of that comes in. I don't know. But then when I start thinking about that, I'm like, but yeah, but then that makes choice possible. Right. Oh, and on and on it goes. Yeah. So he, in, in the ancient Jewish, Jewish stories of Job, Satan kind of takes on this, this uh, more of a derailer. Of sorts. Mm, right. So he was an angel who tried to dissuade people from going down the wrong path. So you look back at, uh, let me see if I have it in my notes here, the uh, the donkey story. Oh, early mentions um, show him in the story of... Balaam? Balaam, yeah, in the, in the book of Numbers. So he's sent by God to rebuke Balaam for beating his donkey, mm. which you should just not do. Yeah, don't beat your donkey. Don't beat your donkey. Yeah. Poor Is, donkey. Maybe that's where the term beating someone's ass came in. <laughs> That could be. <laughs> we laugh, but that might be that it. That might be it. You're welcome. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> but uh but again, it's it's um in, in in those instances, the term Satan is actually a word used to describe the angel's action. It was more of an, an action word versus um, you know, a, a noun, you know, like a person. So, you know, but uh so so in that instance, so the 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 so, so yeah, here it's it's more of a, an action word, you know, used to describe. So in this instance, the term Satan is actually a word used to describe the angel's action. So like, so it says right in right in that verse, but God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the road as a Satan, which is interesting. 
Um, and again, during this time, the term Satan could be used to describe a human action as well as um, and to do wrong to someone or more commonly to put yourself in one's way or to deter. So it's interesting because in the beginning, it starts out as, as something you do versus a, an actual entity. Interesting. Yeah. The devil in you. Yeah. Oh, man, we could use that Smashing Pumpkin songs right now. Oh, man. Billy Corgan, if you're listening, which you're probably not, uh, we'd love to use that. We'd love to interview you. Yeah. And use that. Absolutely. Man, that's good stuff. So one of the other things, too, that that if you take a look back at at uh, what was going on at the time, a lot of the Jewish people, a lot of the, the, the tribes, because, again, this is a, a tribal people, were also dealing with uh, other tribes who followed other religions, um, and they... A common practice at the time was for Jewish people to demonize these other tribes by referring to them, by referring to them, excuse me, by the name of that tribe's most evil demon. Oh, interesting. interesting. It's yeah, like, it's like ancient smack talking. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but um, Satan in Jewish writings uh, always shows up as more of an obstructor than an evil deity. Um, with the exception of the depiction of the snake in the Garden of Eden, of course, which was likely added later. Uh, for the most part. So Satan serves more of the role of the prosecutor of man uh, from for man's own evil tendencies at this point. Interesting. So, and, and again, like you mentioned before, I think there there may have been a ton of influences by neighboring cultures and religions. Where, I mean, we're talking about a, a people who were, who were just constantly invaded and... Um, Assimilated. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. So you've got um, tons of neighboring cultures and religions that may have influenced the further evolution of the evilness of Satan. And, and turning him more into this evil figure, this person versus an action, um, especially during uh, the intertestamental period. <laughs> Why is that so hard to say? So basically the, the, the time from uh, some of the last prophetic writings, um, yeah. you know, through the uh, apocryphal writings uh, in, before the Gospels were actually written. Exactly. So, I mean, you've got other religions like Zoroastrianism from ancient Persia. and. Yep. and uh, definitely some some influences from from them, um, and uh, um, Satan during the time uh, is referred to as uh, that we refer to as First Temple Judaism. Um, Satan was most commonly referred to as a as Hasanat or the adversary, and again, this is something that Richard Beck talks about. You know, when we when we sat down and talked with him, so it's more of a, an adversary necessarily than in like kind of an evil con- con- uh, connotation. Hmm. So, um, it's just really easy, uh, interesting. So if you look back, like, um, uh, let's see, second temple Judaism, Satan began to be referred to as the devil around the same time as the writing of like Genesis, for example. Um, and these, these stories, um, like also include what I think is really interesting. And, and this would be one of the parts of the scripture that I, I just don't know what to do with. Um, these beings called the the Nephilim. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, or fallen ones who are angels who bred with humans. Yeah, that's in there. Very weird. Yep, that's in there. <laughs> so it's like you have stuff like that that may have had some influence on it as well. Um, the Book of Enoch. There's a story that states that these disgraced angels are cast away from God, and from them comes a leader, Azazel. Is that Azazel? Azazel. Yeah. Who over time was used um, as another reference to Satan. So you have. Um, you have this character pulled in uh, to the kind of mythology of Satan. Um, and, and these beings may have been uh, demonized to warn against intertribal marriage. Man. 
So you have a lot of like really weird stuff going on in history, but you also have a lot of like cultural influence. There's so it's such a web of complexity over time. So many different influences, so many different reasons, so many different words. Yeah. What What's the like? What's the sort of bottom line take home in your opinion for people? Not that like we're telling people what to believe. That's not what I'm looking for. But like for you, like, uh, what are some constructive ways that practically you can start to think about all this stuff? I think much like like Judaism, who kind of went away from kind of like this evil version of Satan uh, back to more of the tempter version. I think, um, as Beck puts it, I would kind of take a similar approach. Like, I don't know. There may be this devil figure out there who is this uh, embodiment of evil who who kind of influences us and, and makes us doubt ourselves and and, uh, and and speaks lies to us and, and that sort of thing. That, that absolutely may be possible. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of the examples in Scripture, if we really take a look at it, are really warning against, um, you know, uh, our, our more selfish nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and kind of serving as kind of more of a roadblock in between us and, and, and better decisions and, and, and being more Christ-like and that sort of thing. It's, it's much easier, you know, I think part of evil is, is this condition of almost like human laziness. Mm. It's much easier to walk past the homeless guy on the sidewalk and, and not give him money or, or bring him food or, 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 you know, do something. Yeah. Uh, than it is to actually take the time out of your your day to do that because we're so busy, you know. Like we got to get to Target, we got to look at the, the 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 pretty frames, and you know they're so sp- pretty. Spend money on crap we don't need. You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. So I think if I could if I could sum this up, I think my big takeaway from this is um, is less about how do we see um, hell, how do we view hell, how do we view uh, the devil, as it is, how do we view God. Mm. Like how, how, you know, what is, what is at the end of the day, what our beliefs about hell and and about the devil, what is that? I think that says more about how we view God than Mm -hmm. it does anything else. That's so good, man. Actually, that ties into some thoughts that I was having to kind of close it all up and your, your, your thoughts there to like tie it back to God. I think one of the things that's come up on this podcast from time to time that I think is incredibly helpful and useful is, uh, not looking at God as this sort of objectified being um, out there somewhere, but this um, reality itself, this this ground, this... Um, I don't completely uh, agree with just looking at God as just this ground. I mean, it, there's there's a mystery there that we just can't quite reach. But what I'm, what I'm pretty settled on is that it's more than just... Um, this is Zeus like figure, you know, up on a mountain somewhere or anything like that, like this being just like you're a being or I'm being, but there's much more to it than that. There's an, there's a reality about what God is. Yeah. A a way of things operating or are supposed to operate. And to me, if Jesus is the embodiment of, of what ultimate reality is supposed to be, then that means ultimate reality was built for selflessness that ultimate reality functions best when we take care of each other. That ultimate reality functions best when we don't advance our own agendas, but we lay whatever agenda we might have down for a complete stranger or even our enemies. That that is maybe how fundamental reality is supposed to work. And then that helps me then understand Satan. Whether or not Satan's a being, I don't really care because I don't really care if God's a being or not. 
Um, maybe it is. I mean, the fact that it's all supernatural means we can't know that it's not about that. But what Satan as a being or as an adversary communicates to me is that if this selfless, loving, ultimate reality, um, the God reality is always inviting us up and in, you know, through Jesus, perhaps there is this satanic adversarial reality, always encouraging us just like Jesus in the desert to take what's ours to be popular and powerful and to have it all. And that is, you know, I loved what Richard Beck said, you know, the temptation in the desert wasn't for Christ to look at porn. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not understating that as a problem or something that, you know, can, you know, be crippling and addicting and evil, but like, come on, it, there's more to evil than just, you know, little sins. Yeah. There is this reality calling you into it. Which, again, to tie back to hell, if we, if we walk into one reality or the other forever and ever, it's going to either be like a heaven or it's going to be like a hell. Yeah. And which reality are we with every step and with every breath and with every dollar and with every minute? Which one are we making? Are we making the one that is the adversarial one? That, that way of reality that is power and that is empire and that is climbing and ambition and, you know, ostracizing and excluding? Or are we the inclusive, unconditionally loving, self-sacrificing, surrendering, selfless, beautiful way of reality that I see in Jesus? Yeah. I think that sums it up, man. That's all I got, dog. Yeah. I think that's good. I think um, I think you hit it on the nail nail on the head, and um, I, I hope you guys enjoyed this series. We we had a lot of fun doing it. And it was so fun, dude. And like we got so lucky with the guests that uh, that we really wanted, and actually ended up getting them. Absolutely for this. So um, we'll try to do something similar again next year with some maybe some different guests and uh, some different ideas or whatever. But uh, like if nothing else, we want you guys to just think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to talk about it and to say like and to just chill a little bit chill a little bit like maybe maybe we don't have this thing locked down mm. so I hope hopefully like we heard you guys have some uh, study groups out there um, which is really cool That's that is so cool the utmost compliment to us so um, keep at it um, and uh, next week we'll we'll kind of get back into less of a series but more of some just really cool guests we're excited about uh, before we start our Jesus series. Um, in the month of December to finish off the year. So, And the music on this episode is, um, there's a few songs that have been playing from time to time, and we'll end, end with one track here. Uh, Derek Webb, who's a guest on the show, and who's an artist from Nashville, singer-songwriter, professional agitator, starter of Noise Trade, um, took a look back 10 years ago to an album that he imagined about politics and about a lot of, uh, you know, I think things that tie in with the ideas of Satan and evil and hell. And this album called Mockingbird, and he completely remixed it. All he used was the original vocals. And since I'm a big fan and I wanted to give him a big hug on our podcast here and try to get the word out about this album, if you enjoyed the music today, head over to DerekWebb.com. And I think it's 10 bucks, and you won't be disappointed. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I said last week, so I feel guilty. Uh, Andrew Bell. <laughs> oh, so good. Andrew Bell was a guest on last week's episode. So if you enjoyed his music, please, 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 like as with any of our guests, uh, go and uh, uh, seek them out on social media and let them know that, that the Deconstructionist podcast sent you and uh, and just, you know, continue to send us suggestions. And if you guys are musicians out there and and uh, want to crack it, make it on the show, feel free to, to send your music our way and we'll 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 take a listen. 
We love you guys so much. We know this is a uh, important topic to a lot of people. We just encourage you to have an open mind, have an open heart, give people a lot of space and a lot of grace and just chill a little bit. Yeah. Hashtag just chill. <laughs> we love you guys. <laughs> uh, for now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, guys.
close to me.